Good morning. Let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, we're so grateful to be here on a day that we recognize your resurrection. I pray for you to use me as a vessel for your glory and your gospel, that I would communicate these truths in a way that is understandable, that you would be glorified, that I would decrease so you can increase, and that if there's any here today that do not know you, that they would have a clear picture of who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you could stand with me, we are going to finish the narrative in Luke 24, starting in verse 46. This is the culmination of Christ's ministry. He has died, he has been raised from the dead, and now we turn to his ascension starting in verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So we have read in the opening readings of Christ's crucifixion and death. Then we, then of his resurrection and the tomb where he was buried was empty. Now we have just read of the reason of his death and res- resurrection at the end of Luke. And then Jesus ascended into heaven to be with God the Father. All three of these events are critical in the Christian faith. So we must ask ourselves the question, why? Why does his death even matter? Why does it matter that he is alive and not in a tomb? And why is it necessary that he ascended into heaven? Well, by God's grace, I will hopefully be able to communicate that to you today. I take comfort that is the work of the Lord by the way of the Holy Spirit, that these words will affect your hearts and minds. And that nothing that I do or do not say will be the deciding factor of where your heart lies. But solely on the word of God, that only will change your heart. Whether it be salvation for the lost or sanctification and encouragement for the believer. Amen and praise God for that. It is my goal today to give a clear picture of the gospel. If you do not know what the gospel is, I thank God that you are here today. I pray that by the time you leave here, you will know who you are in Christ. And that can mean one of two things. That your heart, number one, will be softened by scripture. You will be granted faith by the work of Christ and know what he has made available for the world. And you will know that you are his and he is yours and that all the riches of his love and all of his grace and mercy have been given to you freely today. That eternal life is now yours through Jesus and that there is no more fear in death because death has been defeated for you. Or two, you will know who you are outside of Christ. And this is just as important, that outside of Christ, there is no hope. This life 
is all you have. The works that you do will only earn earn you eternal torment. If you do not believe the word of God, the more you hear it, the more hardened your heart will become. You see, the word of God will always accomplish its work, and it will never return void. It will do its work regardless of what you believe. But today, you have the opportunity to hear and know the truth. So I will start off by begging you to listen to what the word of God says. Not to what I say, but what the Holy Scripture has to say. It is a message of hope for the lost, and it is mercy for the sick. So first of all, we must address his death. Why did he have to die? What does it mean and what did it accomplish? Well, the word gospel means good news. And we talk about this a lot. What is the reason that there is good news? There is bad news. Not many churches love to focus on, uh, I mean, so many churches do love to focus on only the good news. And in doing that, they mislead people and will have them believe in a half truth. What good is it to believe and be saved if you do not know what you are being saved from? Many people are going to church today because it's Easter who usually do not normally attend church. And they will hear a gospel that, that may sound like this. God loves you. And they will say to themselves, you know what? That is great. I love me too. I love that. But then the person giving the message will also say, not only does God love you, but he has a plan for your life. And those who are hearing us say, no way. That is wonderful. I have a plan for my life too. And if I believe this, God will give me a great life because that's what I want and that's what I think I deserve. Thank you so much for telling me that. I'm so glad I came here to hear that. But is that the gospel? No. That is not the gospel of the Bible. It is unbiblical. You must know the whole truth. So the first part of that truth is that God is holy. And when you first hear that, you may think to yourself, well, that's not really that big of a deal. But let me explain to you what that means. God is perfect, and we are not. God is perfectly righteous, and there can be no evil in his presence. And despite what you may think of yourself, you are a sinner. The simple meaning of that word sin means to miss the mark. Think of a target with a bullseye, and there's rings that extend from the center, and you take aim, and you fire, and you hit just outside the bullseye. You have missed the mark. Perfection is the bullseye, and you have missed your target. When you sin, you fall short of God's standard, and that standard is perfection alone. God demanded us to be perfect to be in his presence. So, if you are a sinner, you cannot enter into God's holy presence. Let me read from you from Romans 3 if you want to turn there. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. This is what the word of God says about every single person born on this earth, past, present, and future. Starting in verse nine, Romans chapter three, what then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seek after God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the the path of peace they have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then again in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if this is true, beloved, if this verse is true, this creates a bit of a problem for us, doesn't it? When we understand God to be righteous and holy, and you understand yourself to be a sinner, it puts us in a very difficult position. How can a sinful man be right with God? If God is a holy and righteous God, how can I satisfy his requirement of perfection? How can I appease this God? Even if God were to humor you and grant you an audience with him to say maybe state your case or to let him know that you are actually a good person or even to give, you, give him a piece of your mind, it would be futile. He would crush you with just his presence alone because he is holy and we are not. The problem is that we have a wrong view of God and a very, very high view of ourselves, don't we? We deify ourselves. We make up our own laws, our own laws to live by, and set our own standards. And when we don't even live up to our own standards, we justify why we didn't, and then we change the rules to make ourselves feel better. We cannot count on our own righteousness and works. That is why I say God is holy and we are not. We fall short of the standard of perfection. No one can be in the presence of God and behold his full glory. When we read of God's glory in scripture, people drop down flat on their face and they're terrified. God's glory, his holiness, his presence reveals who we really are. It exposes us down to our very core, and it is more than any of us can bear. Also, if we are sinners, that sin must be punished. Romans 2 says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation are theirs. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. So there is the problem. Every man and woman is a sinner. None of us are perfect, and by definition, from the Bible, we are evil. There is a holy God who demands payment for the sin that each one of us has committed. And if you cannot provide that payment, you will suffer God's judgment and wrath for eternity. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, to answer that tremendous problem, let us turn to a very familiar scripture, Perhaps one of the best-known scriptures there is, John 3.16. Let's turn to John chapter 3. But there is a common mistake people make when they read John 3.16. They, they stop at verse 16. If we read further, we find out so much more. So, read with me, John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. And we all know this one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's great, isn't it? For God did not send the son, verse 17, into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. 
This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear, for what? That his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices truth comes into the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Amen. Do you see how much more we learn by reading further? We have to take this verse in context. God sent his son into the world so that the world might be saved through him. Just because he came and died does not mean that everyone from all time automatically are saved. But he who believes in him will not be judged according to their own deeds, but according to whose deeds? The deeds of Christ. You see, there is one who is perfect, who lived a perfect life without sin. He fulfilled God's standard of perfection, something that we can never do. And because he had no sin, his sacrifice on the cross was perfect. He laid down his life and sacrificed himself for his people. His sacrifice was final once and for all. In his death, Christ took the punishment of sin that should have been ours. He stood in our place in judgment. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He bore the wrath of God, and for the first time in the existence of Christ, he was separated from God because of sin. And God, what does he do? He turns his back on his own son because of the stain of sin. This is why Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All he had ever known until that point was a perfect union with the Father. And now that was broken for our sake. It is also why Christ, right before he died, said, it is finished. What is finished? Christ had finished paying the price for the sins of his people. He had finished enduring God's wrath and judgment. He had satisfied God's anger. God was appeased by the perfect sacrifice of his son. And above all, God's plan of redemption was fulfilled and finished. This is why Jesus came to earth. He came to die. He came to be forsaken so we, beloved, would be accepted. This is what we call the great exchange. He took on our sin and judgment and returned. What did he give us? He gives us his righteousness. We are now covered in it. Through Christ, we have mercy and grace, beloved. Now, it is not just the New Testament that proclaims Jesus' death on the cross. Let's take a look at it. A couple Old Testament scriptures. And the first one, of course, is, is the big one, Isaiah 53. If you would like to turn there. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. We read about the Messiah to come and what he would accomplish. And it says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. And in verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. We read that God was pleased to crush his son. And because of the anguish of Christ in bearing those sins, God saw it and was satisfied. He was appeased. Because of the judgment laid on Christ, there is no more judgment for those who have faith in him. The price of sin was paid in full on the cross, in full. That is what we call atonement. Our sins have been paid for. They have been atoned for. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. What are we healed from? We are healed from both the penalty and the power of sin. We are healed and made whole in Christ. We are dead spiritually in our sin outside of Christ, but now are healed and given life and given salvation. By Christ's wounds, we have been made alive, saved from sin and death. Amen. We also read of an example and sign of the Savior to come in, in the book of Numbers. And if you would like to, you can turn there. It's chapter 21. The people of Israel, again, were grumbling. They have been saved from Egypt. And we pick up that narrative in verse 4 in chapter 21, Numbers. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this miserable food. So here we see miraculously God providing the Israelites food. Miraculously. And they hate it. So we see here, what do we see? The sin of the people. Being ungrateful, selfish, and complaining. And we read on, Let, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people died. So what do we call that? It's judgment. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. So now we see repentance because of judgment. Do you see how that works? And Moses interceded for the people. Who intercedes for us? Christ. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. So now we see God's remedy for their sin. He gives them salvation. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, if we look back at John 3, you don't have to turn there. We read about this account from Numbers. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and explaining what it means to be born again. And right before John 3:16, what we just read from, the verse so many people know, Jesus says this, starting in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will what? have eternal life. In faith, we must look to Christ. He is our remedy for sin and death sent by God. He is the salvation that we desire. Do not be like one of the dying Israelites who has been bitten and they willingly reject the remedy God has given us. The cure for sin and the cure for death is readily available to all who will look to Christ and have faith in him alone. 
This means salvation is believing in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But if you reject the light, if you reject the word of God, you are in the dark and are already under judgment. You are condemned. But as a believer in Christ, there is no condemnation as we read in Romans 8. When you believe in Christ and have faith in him, you are justified, declared righteous, and therefore now stand in his grace. You are no longer under his wrath. That weight has been removed. And now you possess eternal life. Christ now becomes your hedge of safety because you identify with him in faith. We also read in Romans chapter five, it says, so then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgressions would, so that the transgression would increase, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The one sin or transgression resulting in condemnation to all men was the sin of Adam in the garden. And because of that sin, all that are born after him are born into sin. All that are born from the line of Adam have a sin nature. This is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. He could not come from the light of Adam and be born into sin. But just as one act of sin condemned all people, one act of righteousness made many righteous. That word justification means to be made righteous. You are declared free from all blame. Upon having faith in Christ, you are now positionally made righteous before a holy God. We must realize that when God gave the law to his people, it was supposed to make them realize their need for a savior. They were supposed to look at it and say, I I cannot fulfill this law. I simply just cannot do this. It pointed to the Messiah who would come and fulfill the law. The realization of sin increased because of the law, but the increase of sin made the grace of God even greater. This is why we proclaim Christ crucified. The effect of Christ's work on the cross is salvation for the sinner. And now the sinner is able to have fellowship with a holy God because he now sees you as righteous because of his son. Can you believe that? The way to God's presence is now open to anyone who will come. Now, if I were to end there, it may seem appropriate, but there's more. We do not just proclaim Christ's death. It cannot stop there but we must proclaim his resurrection. And I'll read again from Luke 24, starting in verse one, what Matthew read from this morning. And it's the resurrection. Starting in verse one, it says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices, which they had prepared. And when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. He did not conquer just sin, but he conquered sin and death. 
How can we have eternal life if Christ is still dead? How can we be raised from the dead if Christ is still in the grave? If Christ had not been raised from the dead, everything that I just spoke about, it's meaningless. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, addresses this, doesn't he? So turn with me there to chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be spending a little bit of time here. And we're going to start in verse 12. It says now, chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith, also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. In fact, if the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. It's pretty heavy. So here Paul is taking at the hypothetical view of what it would mean if Christ had not been raised from the dead. He very accurately states that if Jesus is still in the grave, the whole Christian faith is false. And we would be here in vain today. And Christianity would be no different than any other world religion of this world. It would be empty. Dead religion. The gospel would be false. Our faith would be false. All who proclaim the resurrection are false witnesses. We falsely accuse God to have done something that he has not done. All the disciples, the apostles, and even Jesus himself is a liar if he did not raise from the dead. Listen to what Jesus claims in John 2. Speaking to the Jewish people after cleansing the temple, Jesus answers them, says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Then again, in, in, in John chapter 10, it says, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This would be a heavy accusation that Jesus is a liar because he did not do what he claimed he would do. Also, if the resurrection is false, we are all still in our sins. No forgiveness has been given to you. There would be no eternal life. And all those who had died before us, they are in hell. And not only that, when we die, we will also go there. Then Paul concludes that if this is true, we are a, a pitiful people to be looked down upon. We should throw our Bibles away. I'm wasting your time and you're wasting mine for listening and being here. We must proclaim Christ's resurrection. But look at verse 20 in 1 Corinthians 15. What does it say? 
but now. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Paul now turns the argument on its head and speaks truth. He turns the negative into a positive and states that all the arguments he just stated are false because Christ has been raised from the dead, beloved. All those things are now blessings. We can reread this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 in a positive light. We can read starting in verse 14 saying, but now, since Christ has been raised from the dead, our preaching is not in vain. But now, since Christ has been raised from the dead, your faith is not in vain. But now, since Christ has been raised from the dead, we are not false witnesses of God because we testified with God that he did raise Christ and he did raise the dead. But now, since Christ has been raised from the dead, your faith is not worthless. Your faith is true, and you are no longer in your sins. And But now, since Christ has been raised from the dead, the dead have not perished, and they will be made alive in Christ. And there is eternal life. But now, since Christ has been raised from the dead, we are not to be pitied, but we are to be envied. Jesus' claims are now valid from those verses we just read from John chapter 2 and John chapter 10. That is why when he took his own life up again and raised himself up from the dead, the disciples remembered what he had claimed and believed because it had been fulfilled. It is important to know from John 10 verse 18 that Jesus willingly lays down his life he willingly laid down his own life to his own accord. The Romans or Jewish leaders did not take Jesus' life from him. Christ is not a victim. He is not a victim of man's sinful nature. In Luke 23, 46, we see that Jesus calls out with a loud voice. What does he say? Father, into your hands, what does he do? I commit my spirit the authority to lay down his life and take it up again was given to him by the Father. We cannot minimize his sacrifice by saying his life was taken from him unwillingly by his enemies. No way. It was by his own volition that he laid down his life for his sheep. In the next chapter of John, in, in chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying that a believer's physical death issues new life spiritually. If you believe in Christ, you will never die spiritually. If you have eternal life, and at the end of your physical life, your body goes into the grave, but your spirit and your soul goes to be with the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christ comes back, the dead will be raised, and we will be given a new body fit for eternity. That is why we read in Romans 8, but if the spirit of him who has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who also dwells in you. Even though our bodies are mortal, our spirit is eternal. We have the same spirit that indwelled Christ. And if you think about that, it should blow your mind. Because of God's imputed righteousness, because of the work of Christ, a believer is alive spiritually, not dead, if you are dead, that means you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And since God raised Jesus from the dead, God promises believers in who his spirit dwells will also be raised from the dead. So our spiritual resurrection happens now in our mortal bodies when we have a saving faith in Christ. But he also promises a physical resurrection in the future for our mortal bodies when Jesus returns. Amen. When we believe in the resurrection, we obtain an inheritance that will never perish 
and is waiting for us in heaven. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to what? Be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected protected, beloved, by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, right now, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Who has not been distressed by various trials? So what does that mean? That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him physically, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining here, we, here it is, it, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What we have is a living hope. Christ is not dead. It is living because of the living, resurrected Christ. The word living here in this verse means that the believer's hope is sure, it's certain, and it's real. Opposed to the deceptive, empty, false hope the world offers. This sure hope that we have, uh, have of future inheritance is the same word used in the Old Testament of the promised land promised to Israel. It was Israel's land granted them as a gift from God, and that's our inheritance. It's granted to us as a gift from God. But our inheritance is so much more than land. Our inheritance cannot be destroyed. It will not spoil, and it will not fade in its splendor. And it is protected by the power of God. It is shielded by God's power. This is a military term used to refer to a garrison within a city. It is the same word used in Philippians 4, 7. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How great a hope is this? The knowledge that God's power will guard you from within and preserve you for your inheritance of salvation. And we can rejoice because this salvation was promised to us and is the outcome of our faith in Christ. And beloved, each day we live brings us closer to the day where we will fully see that inheritance. This life and all its trials and trouble we face, it is just temporary. It is just for a little while. Even if you have 80 years left to live, it is still just a little while in light of eternity. Praise God. You see, the belief in the death of Jesus and the belief in the resurrection of Jesus are inseparable. To believe in one and not to believe in the other is to not believe in the gospel of the Bible. They are woven together as one. You see, here it is, don't miss this. The resurrection proves that the Father accepts the Son's sacrifice. It is God saying, you are worthy of life and to conquer death. You are worthy to be the one to bring salvation to the world. You are worthy to be called my son. I am well pleased. You are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And because of that, God looks to the believer, to the one who has faith in his son, 
And because of his beloved son and what he has done on our behalf, do you know what he says to those who believe? You are worthy of eternal life with me. You are worthy to be called the child of God. And you are worthy to be in my holy presence. And in response, what would we say? Lord, we are absolutely not worthy of this. All I have done in this transaction is bring the problem. All I have brought to the table is bring my sin. I do not deserve this. And the Lord says to us, I do not see you. I see my son. That is what happens when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, every spiritual blessing from heaven is yours. The greatest of these blessings is salvation from God's wrath. And we did not earn that. Listen to what Acts 17 says. God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by what? Raising him from the dead. It is the proof. You want proof that the whole world will be judged according to their deeds? Look to the resurrection. Jesus is the man God has appointed and he will judge the world in righteousness. You will either be judged according to your own sinful deeds or you will be judged according to, the, to Christ's righteous deeds. If you are hoping you are good enough to stand before a holy God who demands perfection, all I can tell you is this. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because if you are left to pay for your own sin, you will suffer eternal torment. Just as those who are in Christ will receive a new body fit for eternity to glorify Christ, you also will receive a body fit for eternal suffering. It will be a body that will never age and never fade away, but it will last forever in darkness which is why we plead with you, repent and believe. It is the most loving thing anyone can do for you on this earth. If you believe in the Lord, you will be saved. Now, it would also be appropriate to stop there, but I'm going to say it again, but wait, there's more. After Jesus was resurrected, he was then seen by many many witnesses. It's recorded that he was here for 40 days after his resurrection, and this was to validate his resurrection as it was not seen by just a few people who could make up some elaborate story. In 1 Corinthians, we see that um, it's recorded that he appeared to over 500 people at once. And he appeared to his disciples and he ministered to a number of people. When he was done, let's pick up the narrative in Luke 20, or 24, starting in verse 50, and we read about his ascension. Luke 24, verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed him. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now, we don't usually hear too much about the ascension of Christ. It's only recorded in Mark and Luke in the beginning of Acts. And when they speak of the ascension, it's, it's only for a verse or a few verses. But this event is also extremely significant for the Christian. And we will spend the rest of our time looking at this event. 
Now, as a precursor, a few of us were fortunate enough to go to the, to the Shepherds Conference and we heard a sermon on just the ascension of Christ. It was incredible and it greatly impacted me. So just so you know, the next part of the sermon is gonna be greatly inspired from that. So in, in Christ's death on the cross, we see his sacrifice. In his resurrection, we see his authority and in the ascension, we see his power. In the early church, this doctrine was, was very prominent. We see that in the book of Acts, that the, it averages to be about every other chapter that the ascension is either being talked or preached about. This is understandable because, you know, some of those ones preaching this saw it. <laughs> so you could see why it was so important to them. And it should be important to us. Unfortunately, in today's preaching, this third aspect of, in this third event is, is somewhat overlooked. But let me tell you, let me help you understand what the ascension means. First of all, the ascension, it, it guarantees Christ's return. Christ has promised to come back for his people and bring them up back into glory. But he cannot come back if he does not go. This is why we read in the beginning of Acts, and as they were gazing intently into the sky and he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who had been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. So in the meantime, go and spread the gospel as he's telling his people. Go proclaim eternal salvation, not only the living Christ, but the ascended Christ. It is part of who we are is the ascension. That we look forward to the return of Christ. The ascension reminds us that it's not always going to be like this. Is it? Because that is our hope. that the time of sin and death in this world is limited. We must look back at the ascension so we can look forward to his return, beloved. It also teaches us that everything is going according to plan. What do we see throughout the Old Testament when a patriarch like Abraham is getting ready to leave because his time has come, he's getting ready to die? We see them giving a blessing to his people and passing the responsibilities on to the firstborn. We read in verse 50, Luke, in Luke 24 here, that Jesus lifted his hands, and what did he do? He blessed them. Jesus is taking on this role of a patriarch here and blessing his people before he leaves. We can only imagine what that blessing was. It's not recorded, but I can guarantee you it was a blessing of encouragement and hope for his people. He could have also maybe reminded them of the promise of his return. And this is exactly how God the Father planned for all this to go. He most likely told them, I am only leaving for a little while and I will return. This reminder that everything is going according to the sovereign plan of God should comfort us that nothing in our lives can be taken, uh, nothing in our lives can take us away from God's will. That no matter what the circumstance, according to God's promise, everything is going according to plan. It should assure us of God's goodness. This was promised to us, and we must believe it. It also teaches us of our power now in Christ. Before the patriarch passed away, while he was giving the blessing to the people, there was a transfer of power to the next one up. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, before they died, passed the responsibilities of that role. Moses passed the leadership of Israel to Joshua. And the power and responsibility of that role carries to the one receiving that blessing. Jesus is now blessing those who come after him. To be examples and mediators of what? The exalted Christ. To not waver in our message to the world that there is no other name given under heaven that people should be saved by. 
that we are now to lead in the proclamation of Christ and be examples of Christ's power for the next generation. We must understand our identity in Christ and the power he has given us by way of his gospel, beloved. Christ's commission and blessing has now passed to us. And we are called to step up to the plate. To carry the banner for the, for the exalted Christ until our time has come. And then at that time, we pass the torch and commission the next generation to proclaim Christ in his glory and his exalted form. It also shows us Christ's care for, for us and his people. Now that Jesus has parted for, from us and is now in glory, what does he do? What is he doing now? He is making intercession for us before the Father on our behalf. When Jesus ascended, his ministry of intercession began. And he is continually making intercession for his people. He does not stop caring for his people. Listen to these verses from Hebrews chapter 7. It says, But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and what? Exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people because this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And a few verses later it says, but now he has obtained, <clears throat> obtained a more excellent ministry. And what is that ministry? By such, by as much as he is also the mediator, interceding for us on a better covenant, which he has been enacted on better promises. Christ is the great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice and established a new covenant with his people. An everlasting covenant that solely depended on the Son, and it will never be broken now. Now Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry of mediation and intercession for his people. He has not stopped and will not stop praying for his beloved. He loves and cares for you, beloved. He, doesn't, he did not leave us by ourselves to live out this Christian life on our own. He gave us the same spirit he had while he was here on earth. And we are to follow Christ's example and pray and care for one another as well. His ascension points to this truth. It also anticipates our exaltation, doesn't it? After Jesus parted from them and was carried up into heaven, they worshiped him, we read. They worshiped him because his exaltation preempted theirs. Jesus, when he came down from heaven, took on the form of humanity when he came. He was fully God and he was fully man, but then when he ascended back to the Father, he did not leave his humanity behind. He took it with him, so he returned to the Father in a different state than when he came from. Something to be grasped. But th what this means, it sends a clear message to his people. You will be exalted with me at the proper, not, at proper time. You do not have to have a special form. But in our humanity, we will be exalted as well. We will be exalted because Christ was exalted. This should also cause us to fall down and worship him as the disciples did at the end of Luke. Christ was exalted because he humbled himself. He subjected himself to death, even death on a cross. We must also humble ourselves and serve God. This is a natural act of those who have been saved by him and are awaiting their Savior's return. His exaltation foreshadows ours. And it also gives us purpose. 
we read that the disciples returned to Jerusalem with joy. We see in Acts 1 that the Lord tells them as witnesses of what they have seen and heard in the presence of Christ to proclaim the gospel and his ascension and his return. Starting in Jerusalem and then going out to the ends of the earth. Now that Christ is in glory, we are now to be faithful to that task. Jesus is no longer physically with us, but he has passed the baton to proclaim his name. Without purpose, we become discontent with our lives. And the ascension does give us that purpose. Christ gave us, the pur- gave us purpose in his ascension to go and proclaim the gospel and live it out in our lives. This is the purpose of the Christian life. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We glorify him by proclaiming his exaltation and his return. And lastly, it helps our worship. The last verse of Luke says, and they were continually in the temple praising God. The gospel had been accomplished. There's nothing else left to say except that they praised God for what he had done and what they had seen. The ascension points back to his resurrection. We know that Jesus ascended because we know for a fact that he rose from the grave. His resurrection points back to his work on the cross and the sacrifice he made. We know he rose from the grave because we know for a fact that he died and made salvation available to all who will believe. Do you see how his ascension informs our worship? The gospel is complete and we respond in worship. We should be found regularly in temple, in the church, in today's age, to put it in the vernacular, worshiping God for what he has done and what Christ has accomplished. The everlasting covenant has been established and the work has been finished. In Mark 16, we read, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. There is a finality to this statement. This is the only verse in Mark that describes his ascension. Christ ascended into heaven and took his place of honor and authority next to God. The king has sat down and all authority in in heaven and all authority on earth has been given over to him. There is no need to get up and do more. The work is complete. It is finished. This is where he rules and reigns now, beloved, right now. He's been ruling and reigning since his ascension, and he still continues to do it today. And he is anxiously awaiting for the proper time to be with his people. Now, in conclusion, as I wrap up, listen to these verses as a warning for those who do not believe this truth. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. This message is ridiculous to those who are perishing. What we are telling them to believe is, is, is a man who was alive 2,000 years ago, that he did live a perfect life, he died and he came back to life. Also, that they need to believe that he is the Savior. And if they don't believe that, we're telling them that they're going to hell. And also, if they do follow him, it may result in humiliation and even death as it did with Christ. That's crazy. Why would they believe that? But in reality, what it means is salvation and exaltation and glory. This message cuts to the heart of self-centeredness. Salvation starts with depending on someone else's deeds and that we are justified by those deeds. Then throughout our lives, 
We are molded and sanctified as a result of that justification, being made more like Christ, then ultimately we are glorified to be in the presence of God, where we get to praise him and glorify him for all eternity. If you do not believe in in Christ living a perfect life, that he was put to death on a cross, was buried and rose again, if you do not believe that, and you do not believe that he ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning now, you are already condemned. That's what the Bible says. And you will be judged according to your own deeds. God has given Christ authority to execute judgment. Those who did, those who did the good deeds by the power of the work of Christ, they will be resurrected to life with God. But to those who committed evil deeds and are not in Christ... You will be resurrected to judgment and you will spend eternity where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I will close with this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. New creature. The old things have passed away and behold, the new things have come. Now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making appeal through us. And this is the appeal. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are unworthy of this truth. We are unworthy of your sacrifice the life that you lived on our behalf. We are unworthy of your righteousness being placed on our account. But, oh God, we thank you for it. We thank you for who we are in you. We thank you that we are seen through the lens of your son and his righteousness is now ours. We thank you that you are coming back. We thank you that you are not dead. We thank you that you are alive and ruling and reigning now and in heaven, waiting to be with your people. Lord, I pray as we go out today, we live this life of the gospel out, that it reflects in our daily lives, how we speak to one another, and how we speak to those who are not saved. We beg you to save those who are lost, and we thank you for sanctifying those that are saved. We pray this in your name. Amen.